Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Who influenced artist Edward Gorey, the celebrated illustrator known for his macabre works? An upcoming exhibition titled Gorey's World at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford aims to answer that question. We'll talk with the curator Aaron Monroe about the collection coming up. First, another legislative session has begun, and Connecticut lawmakers have plenty of issues to tackle this spring, including education funding. A recent decision by the state Supreme Court says it's up to the legislature, not the court, to decide how to distribute education funding fairly. The justices in a 4-3 decision overturned a ruling last year by a Superior Court judge who said the way Connecticut funds education was unconstitutional. How do you think state lawmakers should address this issue? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, I want to welcome into the studio our guests. Uh, James Finley is principal consultant for the group Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding. This is the group that sued the state. Uh, Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Also in studio is Representative Andy Fleischman. He represents West Hartford, also a longtime co-chair of the Connecticut General Assembly's Education Committee. Representative Fleischman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start with you, uh, Jim, if you don't mind me calling you Jim, not James. Not at all. That's fine. Um, there's, it's been a long process, a, a, I think over 12-year legal battle uh, to change the way the state funds its public schools. Can you give us a little history when, it, when this group uh, first sued the state back in 2005, and, and what were some of the reasons why? Yeah, the group started in 2005. Our, our founder of the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding was uh, Diane DeVries, uh, fortunately passed away right before the uh, trial court. Um, she was uh, an exuberant, smart person who felt that there was too many school children in Connecticut that were denied an adequate and equitable educational opportunity. She recognized early on the achievement gap that exists in Connecticut between our poor uh, students, our English language learning students, and our students at risk in our poor districts. There seems to be two Connecticut's in our K-12 through public education system. One Connecticut where you get that fair opportunity for an, a good education, and others where your district is so under-resourced and you have so many issues going into school that you're really denied that opportunity. Give us some examples of the disparities uh, that were raised during that trial uh, before the Superior Court. Yeah, there were 1,060 findings of fact, which were extraordinary, that were accepted by the trial court and also by the Supreme Court that showed uh, in great detail down to the school level uh, the lack of resources that exist in about a half a dozen of our school districts in Connecticut. Um, The vast majority of our poor minority English language learning students are really in 12 school districts in Connecticut. So there's really a a wide uh, disparity between the opportunities that exist in those 12 communities versus the other over 100 municipalities. So when the Superior Court Judge Mukasher uh, ruled, uh, he ruled in your favor, uh, then it was before the state Supreme Court, and that's the decision we're talking about today, where they overturned that lower court ruling, saying it's up to the legislature, not the courts, uh, to come up with a a system that is fair. What are your next steps? So what's your reaction uh, now that uh, that reconsideration was denied? 
Well, in our view, uh, the Supreme Court in Connecticut showed a callous indifference to the plight of tens of thousands of poor um, and at-risk students in Connecticut. It really turned the clock back in regard to judicial activism on behalf of our poor and minority students in Connecticut. We've had 40 years of litigation in Connecticut involving education finance. Uh, We went to the court 12 and a half years ago because we didn't feel the other two branches of state government were protecting the state constitutional rights of those children. Let's talk about what the the state constitution actually uh, says in in relation to education because that's what the justice has based it on. So they say that there's a a duty to provide a minimally adequate education. What does that mean? Well, what it means is it's the lowest standard that exists in the United States as far as we know right now in regard to the idea of adequacy. It it riffed off a New York State uh, Court of Appeals ruling but even minimized the impact of that ruling and said all the district needs to provide is a school building, a roof, heat, uh, relatively up-to-date textbooks, and teachers. That's it. That becomes the new gold standard in Connecticut, at least in regard to the judiciary. We now think the judiciary has put it clearly in my friend's lap and his colleagues in the legislature. Um, There's a widespread recognition that the concerns that C. Jeff raised in the court case Uh, need to be addressed. Sitting next to you is Representative Fleischman. Again, uh, you represent uh, West Hartford, and you've been a longtime chairman of the Legislature's Education Committee. Uh, What's your reaction to how the Supreme Court ruled, and what are the next steps? Well, first of all, uh, while Jim is a longtime friend, I find his characterization of the law of the land to be a mischaracterization. So, if you look at our state constitution, what it says is in Article 8, Section 1, there shall always be free and public elementary and secondary schools in the state. The General Assembly shall implement this provision by appropriate legislation. So the ruling of the Supreme Court was basically to read that part of the constitution on its face and say, yeah, that's it. It's the job of the legislature to do this. And we also recognize that given that over the last six years, the General Assembly has dedicated over $400 million of additional funding to the 30 districts that are the neediest districts, that do uh, suffer the downside of the achievement gap. It's clear that the General Assembly has not been blind to its responsibilities. Now, the place where Jim and I would agree is that uh, the achievement gap is morally unacceptable. The legislature can and must do more. But it's not the job of the courts to write education policy or to write state budgets. Jim, do you want to respond? Yeah, I respectfully disagree with um, uh, my friend's uh, reading of the of the state constitution. Uh, since the Horton v. Mesco cases and the, and the Chef v. O'Neill, O'Neill cases, um, our state court system has uh, enlarged and clarified the original meaning of our state constitution. Uh, C. Jeff feels that the Supreme Court failed students in this regard in this last case. A very narrow decision, one vote either way. Uh, would have changed the uh, the outcome. But the lack of resources that exist in our poorer school districts, undeniable, needs to be addressed. Can we talk further about that? Because there is the notion, um, some believe in the state, that uh, these cities are getting more and more money. And so then why hasn't there um, being seen as success and how children are learning um, to address that achievement gap. It's, so I'm just curious um, if you could talk a little bit about as the money continues to be shifted, the governor's recent uh, budget proposal um, has more money 
to be shifted to these lower performing districts. So why is the problem not you know, being addressed? Well, one of the, money is one of the issues. It's not the entire issue. Um, the, the present ECS formula is underfunded by over $600 million. Um, uh, the fact of the matter is that the students uh, that are at risk in these poorer school districts come in with a lot of uh, learning uh, uh, disparities, learning uh, inability to learn at the at the regular level that that other students uh, live. They come uh, from homes with poverty, often uh, a single uh, uh, household, uh, um, mother, father, things of that nature, um, and they often are English language learners which studies show would cost three to five times the cost of a regular education student. Um, and they come with uh, uh, baggage that is difficult uh, to, to get out of and, and, and to really um, be able to succeed in, in a learning environment that doesn't have intervention uh, in regard to helping them overcome the learning disabilities that they start with. This is this is not something that's new to lawmakers, such as Representative Fleischman. You've heard these concerns uh, for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways to solve what uh, C. Jeff is talking about? This, I, this, the fact that some districts are overwhelmed by mm-hmm. the needs of disadvantaged students, that, cities that can't raise revenue easily. So, what's the solution? So, first of all, I want to say uh, we have a citizen legislature. Outside the legislature, my job is to run Big Brothers, Big Sisters for Connecticut, and I work with the families Jim is talking about every day. So uh, I reject the notion that the General Assembly is somehow insensitive to the questions that Jim has raised. We're very aware of them. I also reject the notion that one should simply point to the families and the disadvantages and say that's why the districts are struggling, more money, more money, more money, because the truth is among alliance districts, some are turning around and some are not. And the ones that are turning around, it's not that they have families that are better off. It's that they have districts that are better run. Which ones? Which ones are uh, talking about? So if you talk about Bloomfield, if you talk about Bristol, if you talk about New London, they have better governance, which means their board of ed oversees policy and doesn't try and micromanage. They have better leadership, which means not just that they have better school leaders, but they have systems for developing leaders and keeping them in place. So if one moves along, they have another good leader to step in. Last and certainly not least, they have better use of data. They collect all sorts of data around how kids are doing, not just at the end of the year, but during the year in terms of formative assessments and attendance and behavior. And then they use that data to help sure, make sure that all kids are on a trajectory of growth. So those districts that I mentioned, they are not better resourced than the other alliance districts. Their families don't have greater advantages. They're better run. So that was one of the things that uh, many of the justices recognized was that, uh, and the state presented voluminous evidence to this effect. There is not a one-to-one correlation between how much money you put toward the problem and the result. You have to have a system that's run correctly. As we sit here in Hartford, where there's been such uh, constant turnover of superintendents, as you look at some of the other major districts that have had a failure of governance, you have to acknowledge it's not just about the money, it's about improving governance. And so at the legislature, we've been trying to do what we can to make sure that alliance districts are not only getting more funding, but that are getting the supports that allow them to get those three critical factors right. This is where we live. Uh, You're hearing Representative Andy Fleischman, um, who represents West Hartford, also co-chair of the Connecticut General Assembly's Education Committee. Today we're talking about uh, how the state moves forward with uh, trying to find uh, 
a better way to uh, fund education. Uh, that's something that CJF wanted. This was the group that sued the state more than 12 years ago. Jim Finley is in studio with us, principal consultant for the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding. You represent parents, teachers, elected officials. Uh, what's your response to Representative Fleischman where um, he's saying that leadership within the towns, within the school districts, they have to find a better way uh, to help these, these students in their schools? There's no question that leadership is important at the at the school district level, but to make uh, administrators, principals, and teachers in those districts the scapegoats, I think is missing the point. The fact of the matter is that the state constitutional responsibility for educational opportunity lies with the state and the state alone. It's a non-delegable responsibility. The State Department of Education does not provide enough backup and support to help administrators in some of these struggling districts principals and teachers. More resources need to be done in regard to professional development and a little more guidance from the state of Connecticut. The State Department of Education is under-resourced and understaffed. Representative Fleischman. Uh, we found a nice point of agreement. Uh, it's painful to me to see what state budgets have done to the State Department of Education in the last couple of years. Um, I actually uh, spoke very clearly with my leadership about trying to get more dollars into the State Department of Education to support professional development, to support mentoring of new teachers. It was a huge disappointment to me that those dollars didn't make it into the last state budget, and I'm fighting to try and make sure that with the new funds that showed up that went straight into the Rainy Day Fund, we're able to bring some of those dollars out of the Rainy Day Fund to provide just the supports Jim is talking about. Uh, I do think it would be unfair for the state to expect uh, districts to turn around without providing them with robust support, and I believe that that's what we ought to be doing. Before we head into our break, you know, I'm just curious if you can help our listeners understand, uh, because we are in this persistent deficits year after year after year, the state has uh, particular liabilities that they have to fund, a, not a lot of, of wiggle room in terms of the kind of money that's there to help these schools to be funded fairly. So what is the answer? Well, in the current fiscal year, I reject the paradigm that says we have to be cutting more. There's $900 million that showed up in January due to a 2008 act of Congress that required repatriation of certain foreign profits. And those dollars went straight into the rainy day fund. It's raining, it's snowing, it's sleeting, it's icy out there. I do think it's appropriate for us to take some of those dollars and to use them to address the educational needs. And I'm talking about needs that are across the state. You know, Jim and I have been talking about the districts that are struggling most, but there are a lot of districts that are having challenges. My home district of West Hartford, out of 169 districts, we spend 128th per pupil. Now, we're still getting some pretty good results, but we're right on skating on the line. And uh, the governor has twice cut our education funding in the middle of a fiscal year. I don't think that's ethically acceptable. I don't think it's managerially acceptable. And I would like to see these extra dollars that showed up go toward education and not just get squirreled away in the rainy day fund as if it's not raining. Uh, Jim Finley, you used to be with Connecticut Council for Municipalities, or, or CCM. Uh, when this happens, when money that uh, towns uh, expect to receive uh, ends up being cut, it goes back to the, the property owners in that town. They expect their taxes to go up. There's no question about it that the, uh, the recent history of uh, budget cuts to municipalities and school districts have been devastating. Uh, Connecticut relies more on the property tax than most any other state to fund K-12 public education. So when you cut the town side 
of municipal budgets, it puts even more pressure on property taxpayers to make up for the for that cut and the cut on the education side. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me, Jim Finley, a consultant for the group that sued Connecticut to get the state to change how it funds public schools. It's the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education funding, representing teachers, parents, and elected officials. Uh, now the group is advocating for the General Assembly to do more. Uh, Representative Andy Fleischman's with us to give that perspective. He's co-chair of the Legislative's Education Committee. When we come back from the break, we're going to find out uh, more about uh, what lawmakers did in 2017 to change up this education funding formula. And we want to hear from you. What is realistic in a state with a perpetual budget crisis? Will other needs keep that additional aid from reaching school districts? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The achievement gap between white students in wealthy suburbs and students of color in poor cities continues to persist in Connecticut. A lawsuit first filed 12 years ago to compel the state to change how it funds public schools has reached a dead end after the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned a lower court ruling that stated this formula was unconstitutional. Now, the majority of justices ruled it's up to lawmakers to come up with a fair way to fund public schools. Before this decision came down, the legislature passed a law attempting to make some changes. Now, how do you think lawmakers should approach funding education as the state continues to wrestle with consistent deficits year after year? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Representative Fleischman, I understand the the legislature did pass a law to change up uh, the education uh, cost-sharing formula in 2017 before this decision came down from the state Supreme Court. So tell us what the change did. was supposed to do, and how will you plan on keeping that plan going, again, as we see budget deficits year after year? Uh, So what the legislature did uh, had a lot of different pieces to it. I'll just focus on the main ones. Uh, Number one, there was a change in something called the wealth factor in the education cost-sharing formula, and the change that was made essentially will drive more dollars to the districts with greatest need. So from the perspective of Jim and the members of his alliance, it makes the the education formula more progressive and more helpful to the districts with the greatest need. We also added in weightings for things that hadn't gotten weightings before, like English language learners, uh, which to me was a step forward. My town, there are children coming from households with over 70 different world languages spoken, a lot of them not speaking English before they get to the West Hartford Public Schools. So for us to give weighting to English language learners made sense. Uh, I think the weighting could be heavier and should be going forward, but it's at least counted in the formula. We continued to weight the needs of students in poverty, but we chose a better factor to measure poverty. So all of these were things that uh, militate in the direction of the state providing more help to districts with greatest need. There was a phase in created so that these changes uh, won't happen overnight. They'll happen over the course of 10 years. Um, And politically, basically, that's what's needed to pass changes in the formula. Because if you try and change the whole thing overnight, you don't have the votes to do it in the House or the Senate. So um, we've got a a movement toward uh, what I think is a a more progressive approach going forward. So there's uh, projections to have additional aid 
because of that change in law, but it's not protected from budget cuts when things get tough. So last year, um, when there was a deficit uh, left over from the budget proposal the legislature passed, they said the governor needed to cut um, to find room for more cuts. ECS was cut. Yes. Now, the governor did not have to go to ECS. The governor could have made cuts anywhere else in the $20 billion budget. In my personal opinion, it was a rather punitive move meant to get back at a legislature that had enacted a budget uh, that he wasn't part of. Uh, and so there were cuts to districts where a lot of us were scratching our heads as to how he determined that this one or that one should receive the kind of cut that he imposed. Uh, he's the governor. He was given that latitude in the budget uh, to my dismay, I, that's not something that I was for. I think the legislature not only has the responsibility to create a progressive, sensible formula for funding schools, but to protect it against uh, mid-fiscal year changes. And certainly going forward, I'm going to try and make sure that never happens again. Donna's calling from Hartford. Donna, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to reinforce uh, what the representative from West Hartford was saying regarding application of best practices. I work for the State Department of Education as a consultant, and I, in my uh, 25 years in the education profession as a teacher, uh, school leader, now as central office administrator, that is indeed my observation, which is that you can money indeed you need for especially to run certain programs do require extra money such as the the reference to english learners programs you do need extra money because you need smaller classes and um certain types of uh curriculum supports that do cost money but however in terms of uh raising overall performance in a school district especially underperforming school districts it truly is the application of best practices uh, most especially on the level of administration and central office administration. And when you are using best practices to implement programs, we do, in see, do indeed see that student performance does rise. Thank you, so Donna. I just want to reinforce that. Thank you, Donna, for, for your call. Jim Finley, do you want to respond? Yeah, I've already, I've already said that uh, there's no question that uh, best practices, uh, improving administrative and, and teaching capabilities at the local district level are important. Uh, there's a lack of resources at the state level to, uh, to to provide that assistance. But I'd like to go back to sort of the challenge of the legislature. Um, the legislature last year took some baby steps to improve the education cost-sharing formula. Um, but the problem is they continue to make decisions in a vacuum. CJEF would still like to see an education adequacy cost study done so that we would understand the real world with hard data, what the actual student needs are, and um, I'm pleased to say that my colleague, uh, Andy Fleischman, and his co-chair supported that effort uh, last year. We hope that that can inform a state commission that was enacted during the last budget uh, in October. But the appointments haven't been made to the commission. Obviously, it's going to need to have its uh, deadline extended. But an adequacy cost study could provide that real-world data. Let's find out what the needs are, how much they would cost, and let's put together a formula knowing that hard data. So a formula that doesn't just look at taxable property within a municipality and how many students are considered low income? That's part of the, that's part of the component, uh, no question about it. And that was a big improvement in regard to the uh, uh, town wealth factor within the ECS formula. But more work needs to be done to, to uh, improve a formula that's often dealt with hypothetically 
but without the real-world data that needs to be done to show the diversity of need that exists in this small state. Representative Fleischman, we just have a couple of minutes. Again, you're co-chair of the Education Committee. What are the priorities going to be in this session? Are these issues that we're talking about going to be addressed? Well, for starters, it's important to be aware that when the legislature has done something as dramatic as to completely rewrite the education cost-sharing formula, it's not reasonable to expect that they're going to go ahead and do it again the next year in a short session. Um, I would expect that when it comes to ECS, we're going to watch what the commission does. That commission, by the way, was not asked to do an adequacy cost study. That was a desire of Jim and his team. It's not something that I believe necessary for the following reason. I'm now persuaded that there is not such a thing as cost adequacy. You can't calculate it because let's take Bristol. Bristol is doing a good job with the same dollars that are not working in Bridgeport. So it's not a question of the money. It goes back to the caller's good point about efficacy. Um, But looking towards this session, uh, there are other steps we can take. We need more great teachers in the state of Connecticut. We need more minority teachers. We're not doing as well as we could on that front. We have a minority teacher recruitment task force uh, whose efforts we're going to be promoting. Um, We have mentoring for new teachers that uh, really got cut away in the last budget. We need to support those new teachers. That's how they become great teachers. We'll be working to try and make sure that stays in place. Social-emotional learning is critical for kids. The kids who have behavioral problems, it's not just about academics. It's about their understanding of emotion. We can do more there, too. Jim, uh, before we go, again, Jim Finley, Principal Consultant to the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding. Um, Will there ever be political will to really change up how Connecticut is governed in the sense of how we have so many school districts in a state with limited resources? Well, the Connecticut Supreme Court said there's no legal imperative to improve our K-12 education system. CJEP believes there's a moral imperative now uh, to be brought to bear on the legislature and the executive branch. We have some of the most economically and racially segregated school districts in America, We have one of the largest achievement gaps in America. The job is not done yet. I want to thank again Jim Finley and Representative Andy Fleischman, State Representative for West Hartford, co-chair of the Legislature's Education Committee. This won't be the last time we talk about this. Hope both of you can join us in the coming months. Thank you for having us. And let me just say I agree completely with Jim about the moral imperative. I think we share that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Um, we want to thank, again, both our guests to come on to talk about, uh, you know, difficult policy questions and decisions that need to be made at the state capitol. It's WMPR's winter fundraising campaign. Do you enjoy the conversations we have on where we live like this? We cover a lot from policy to art, history to social movements happening in your community and across the globe. You can support programs on WMPR with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening to Where We Live's podcast on Connecticut Public Radio. And while I've got you, here's our promise. Great conversations and analysis are just part of what we do. WNPR covers the news that matters most with voices you can trust. But we need your support. Make your contribution at wmpr.org slash donate or 1-800-584-2788. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The exhibition Gorey's Worlds is coming to Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford later this week. Edward Gorey lived on Cape Cod, but according to the museum, he often visited the Wadsworth Athenaeum. He would later bequeath more than 70 objects from his private collection. They'll be part of the exhibition opening on Saturday, including some of Gorey's own illustrations. To tell us more, in studio with me now is Aaron Monroe, Associate Curator of American Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum and Curator of 
Gorey's World exhibition. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you for having me. So Edward Gorey, a very interesting man, and we're going to learn more about his life um, from the curator of the Edward Gorey House in just a few minutes. But tell us about this, this exhibition opening and what people will see. Well, there truly is something for everyone. Edward Gorey was a very uh, peculiar individual. His artwork is distinctive pen and ink illustrations, and he was influenced by quite a variety of other artists. So you'll see 19th century American folk art, uh, examples of surrealist prints and drawings, um, and it's truly a, a peek into his artistic inspiration and who influenced him. Tell us a little bit more for people who don't know about Edward Gorey. Uh, he's often described his illustrations as macabre. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you, give us an idea for people who haven't seen it. And we have some pictures on our website, WMPR, um, wmpr.org slash where we live, uh, of some of his illustrations and interesting uh, books that he wrote. Not yes. very many words, but very uh, adult humor, but also could appeal to children. Absolutely. I think one of the most notable motifs is his use of animals that are usually talking or up to mischief in a way that may remind you of someone like Dr. Seuss. But what Gorey does is he uses a very distinct pen and ink drawing style, not a lot of color. Uh, So the work kind of looks like it's from the 19th century. Um, There aren't really references to modern life, but he has a really interesting knack for word choice and his tales of unfortunate events may involve children or strange animals, uh, the kind of things that go bump in the night. So there is a a darkness, but through researching Corey's inspiration, there's actually a lot of humor and whimsy. Can you give us an idea of some of that humor and whimsy? You brought a book with you with some illustrations. Yes, I did. Well, it's interesting. Um, Among my favorite uh, characters is one called the Wuggly Ump. Uh, which its name in and of itself has a little bit of a sing-songy quality. Um, and the first lines of this book, The Wuggly Ump, begin, Sing turaloo, sing turalay, the wuggly ump lives far away. And then it continues, It eats umbrellas, gunny sacks, brass doorknobs, mud, and carpet tacks. So you have this sort of oversized cat-looking creature um, that continues to um, wreak havoc on life of some small children. And uh, the way Gory tells this tale is through these rhyming couplets, which is uh, a way to kind of mask anything slightly dangerous that's happening. I understand to uh, prepare for this exhibition, you visited the Edward Gorey House on Cape Cod. And on the phone with us now is the curator of the Edward Gorey House, Gregory Hischek. Gregory, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. For people who don't know about this house, where on the Cape? And what can you tell us about his life on the Cape? Um, Edward's house is located in um, in Yarmouthport, which is eh, we we call it the uh, uh, the bicep of the Cape in a way. If you were to look at the Cape, it's uh, about halfway out, and it's near Hyannis, about eight miles. It's a uh, a place where Edward uh, Edward bought the house where the museum is in 1979. But his history with the Cape goes back for several decades. He would summer there when he wasn't in New York, staying with his cousins over in Barnstable, and uh, he bought this house. Um, on the Yarmouth Port Commons um, in 1979 when he had a big kind of a fat royalty check from the production of Dracula in New York. That's right, because uh, for, uh, some people may know him as an author and illustrator. He was also uh, a set designer, and he's, he even did work for uh, the, the beginning of PBS's Mystery. He did indeed, which is what 
which is kind of the big aha moment for a lot of people in Edward Day. You say, oh, that fellow. Actually, if I could interject that uh, I've had that same experience that people that may not know his name start to see that sequence and go, oh, my gosh, I grew up watching that. And I'm delighted that in the exhibition we'll uh, be able to uh, project that opening sequence from Mystery, which, of course, still airs today. We were talking about his macabre style, uh, Gregory, uh, but he wasn't a recluse. He actually had a, a very, you know, very good relationship with people on the Cape, from what I understand. He was very involved in the, in the theater world there, as well as in New York. Uh, what will people learn when they go to your museum, your Edward Glory House on the Cape. Yeah, he was he was not a recluse, and he didn't like the word macabre because it, it didn't give an idea of the humor that was in all his work. But uh, at the house, we, um, we 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 focus on well, we focus on something different every year. But the the strength of the house is we really showcase Edward's humor and his somewhat randomness and approach to life. And uh, and you know, in my time there, I've discovered with the people who are still around though they dwindle with every passing year. The people who knew him, some of whom came to the Cape specifically to live near him, some who worked with him, he was dearly loved by the people who he allowed to get close to, to get close to him. Um, he was a good friend, he was a hard worker, and he was a very dependable, uh, charming person to be around. And he was around a lot of people. We're talking about celebrated uh, illustrator and author Edward Gorey today because of an exhibition opening up at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford this Saturday. It's called Gorey's Worlds. In studio with me is the Associate Curator of American Art at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, also curator of this exhibition, Aaron Monroe. Um, Tell us a little bit more about why you think... uh, why you think Edward Gorey gave parts of his collection to the Wadsworth, that, that connection. Yeah. He could have given it to any museum. He could have, and we are the only museum. And I've uh, been told, and uh, I re- again, knowing of uh, Edward having some, some close friends, they reference uh, the museum's own history with the ballet, dating back to the 1930s, uh, which seems a little random. But when you learn that Edward Gorey attended over 150 performances of the New York City Ballet for nearly 30 years. Um, You get to realize his deep appreciation for the New York City Ballet and, in particular, George Balanchine, its leading choreographer. So there's this prologue to the New York moment where the Wadsworth Athenaeum's director, Chick Austin, invited George Balanchine to Hartford to try and set up a school in Hartford for the ballet. that ultimately failed. Um, I think Balanchine had uh, a little more interest in a high-energy city like New York. and But Gorey would have definitely known of this deep history and deep connection to the ballet. And then there's the logistics. Uh, we are somewhat of a halfway point between New York City and the Cape. So Gorey would have made that trip annually. And uh, we know for a fact that he spent time in our galleries. Mm. Now, when people go to the exhibition, again, they'll see some of Gorey's illustrations, but next to maybe some of the things that he had um, drawn throughout his career, next to what inspired him. Can you walk us through maybe a couple of those? Sure, sure. Well, there are uh, four sections. uh, And as as Greg said, there is a a kind of randomness to, to Gorey's collecting, and he didn't only collect fine art. It included you know, vintage objects he found at a flea market. Um, granted, we're centered on the 
the fine art that he collected, because that's, of course, what's in the Wadsworth collection. Um, but one section, for example, is about um, his cast of characters, you know, his love of cats and bats. And in fact, we have um, a beautiful 20th century drawing by Charles Birchfield of bats, uh, which I believe is on the website. You can take a peek, which I know, uh, based on my research, Gory purchased right around the time he was doing those set designs for Dracula. So sometimes there's a very visual, direct connection. Um, other times it's maybe a little more elusive. It's more of a mood. Uh, so then another section is called Real and Imaginary Settings. So we have beautiful painted landscapes as well as uh, photographs of empty Parisian street scenes, which to me uh, must have spoken to Gory's interest in this kind of mood moment. They sort of become backdrops in Gory's stories. Mm. We're talking about the the artists that uh, inspired Edward Gory. You can see some of those um, next to his illustrations at the Wadsworth Athenaeum beginning on Saturday. Aaron Monroe in studio with me, curator of Gory's Worlds exhibition. Gregory Hischek's on the phone with us, curator of the Edward Gory House on Cape Cod. I understand, uh, Gregory, that... Uh, that Edward Gorey was a huge fan of Agatha Christie, and that was a big inspiration for him, too. Agatha Christie was his most popular author, and this is a man who had 25,000 books in the house when he died. Um, he, was, I, he was the product of, you know, if there was a love child of Agatha Christie and Edward Lear, it would be <laughs> Edward Gorey. You know, he was, uh, and, 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 and in fact... It's lovely you say that because the show that we're working on right now does involve his love of the murder, murder mystery genre. And uh, you realize it infuses all his work. Almost everything that he does in his own books um, has that style and manner of Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and all these people. He loved that, that language and that vocabulary, and he used that to great effect in most of his books. Aaron mentioned that some of what's in the collection are, are not uh, fine art examples. When you walk through the Edward Gorey house on the Cape, what were some of the things that he collected? Well, it's true. The Wadsworth got the good stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and we were, <laughs> and what they left behind, they missed a few gems, of course. But what we were left with was the other artwork that Edward collected, which was yard sale art, uh, garage sale things, found things from garbage cans, pictures of people's pets, uh, you know, pictures that maybe he liked the frames. And Edward, he he paid market price for everything that he bought, you know, if it was a nice piece or 50 cents from a yard sale. And once he got him into the house, their value was equal. Hmm. And, you know, we have documentation of his Munch uh, print hmm. yeah. next, to, next hanging on the wall next to a plate that somebody had painted their dog on. Yeah, and uh, we, the plate is still up on the wall, in fact. And uh, it's, it, it's fascinating that he gave everything equal value once it entered his house. Yeah, that's, that's what I found so fascinating is when you hear about someone's fine art collection, you might envision it in some cherished room in a wing of their house. But with Gorey, he, he literally immersed himself and lived with it. So it, it actually, in, in looking at views of his house and even his apartment in New York City, which are included in the exhibition, you start to see how well, you can kind of relate to it. I mean, some of it's kind of conscious cluttering, I call. There's relationships that he bestowed upon very different objects that might resonate with someone who collects rocks, you know, from a summer vacation and then puts that next to a piece of sea glass and then a souvenir postcard. I mean, that, that kind of describes the aesthetic of Gory's uh, domestic life. He wasn't a hoarder? 
I would not use that word. Um, I think there's a kind of psychological component that I'm not qualified to to assign, but I do think that there was a there was purposeful arrangements um, that are um, really peculiar, but also kind of mystifying. I understand he was a child prodigy, and that. And that he was a warm person. Yeah, I, I think that the goal of this exhibition is if you, um, you know, have a passing knowledge of Gorey and, and you may think of a reclusive individual. A lot of people think he was actually British. He was not. <laughs> he grew up in Chicago. Um, but he read at an early age. He made drawings at an early age. Um, although he, he didn't actually have a lot of formal art training. He was largely self-taught and he was an avid reader and a consumer of culture. Aside from the ballet, he went to film, uh, he went to the movies, he also loved daytime TV, like soap operas and... Buffy the Vampire Buffy Slayer. the Vampire Slayer. Uh, he loved the movie Babe. I mean, there's all these anecdotes that help break down this uh, this kind of mystique about him, where he just, you know, he liked Oreo cookies in the movie Babe. I mean, that's that was him as well as this more erudite uh, creative mind. Right, Greg? Yes, true. Yes, true. <laughs> Gregory, did you ever get a chance to meet Edward Gorey? I did not meet Edward. Uh, I moved to the Cape a few years after he died, and I'm I'm kind of the next generation of people uh, working at the museum who don't have a personal uh, relationship with Edward, unlike the director, Rick Jones, and several of our docents mm. who knew him. But I feel I know, well, you can't really know him. I would never <laughs> say I know him, but I, I, I always feel comfortable Looking at the things that he did, I understand why he did things. I mean, I have the same enough of the same compulsions that I <laughs> that I feel comfortable looking at how he lived. I can relate to it. Gregory Hischek, again, curator of the Edward Gorey House on Cape Cod. When's the best time to check out the Edward Gorey House, Greg? Well, the best time is when we're open, which happens um, in uh, April. April 12th, we will open for the season. And we'll be open all the way until the end of the year in December. Well, good to talk with you. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into Edward Gorey's life. Also, Aaron Monroe, curator of Gorey's World Exhibition, opening this Saturday. Who do you think is going to come? I hope everybody comes. <laughs> there is literally something for everyone. Kids, adults, in between, artists, writers. And if you know the alphabet, you're going to come away learning something <laughs> from Edward Gorey, too. Thank you so much, Aaron. There's Infanticidal ABC. That's a book to, yep. to look up. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but the show runs uh, opens February 10th, runs through May 6th. And actually, this Saturday is Second Saturdays for Families. So please come and join us. This is where we live. If you, if you appreciate the conversations we have, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support it.